Welcome to Account Trends, everybody. I'm Jason Stein with Intuit Accountants. My co-host, David Bergstein, and I are excited to be with you every couple of weeks to share the latest news, interesting perspectives, and hottest trends in the tax and accounting world. We'll have special guests on the show to help break these trends down and give you food for thought as you find new ways to deliver for your clients. But most importantly, we plan on having some fun while doing it. Welcome. Welcome to the show, everybody. Uh, We have Ron Baker here joining us to talk about value pricing 2.0. So welcome, Ron. Appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Ron, you know, just getting it off the table, right? You are affectionately known as the godfather of value pricing in our profession. I've heard that come from old. many people. <laughs> yep. Just no Marlon Brando impressions on the show, if you will. Um, so <laughs> tell us, uh, so you, you've coined this, this value pricing 2.0. What does that mean? How is it different from the conversations we've been hearing? Value pricing 2.0 recognizes that we're seeing a tsunami in the economy, and that's the subscription business model. Uh, If you just look outside the window, you look at most of the unicorns out there, they're all based on subscription. The market is screaming. Investors are screaming at businesses, we want annual recurring revenue. And a subscription business model is a completely different business model than an hourly billing business model or a value pricing business model. And I think it's about time that professional firms start to pick up on this. Some of them have. But we need a lot more to move over to this, what I think is a more dynamic and valuable model. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Why are accountants hesitant to move into this? Probably for the same reason that they were hesitant to leave the billable hour and move into value pricing. When that whole thing started in the early 90s, uh, changing a business model in a profession is very difficult. Um, we don't have the same competitive forces as, say, a tech firm or, you know, a software company that has lots of competition and there's just, you know, a lot of intense pressure to change a business model. We have pretty staid, you know, secure revenue from year to year as accountants, and uh, that makes us a little bit complacent. But I think the firms that are ahead of the curve are starting to wake up and realize that at some point, I'm going to want to sell my firm at some point, maybe because I'm going to retire enjoy the golden years or just out of necessity. And if I want to get more than one time's revenue, it's nicer to have annual recurring revenue because that'll get you multiples of revenue higher than we've ever seen with any other type of business model, including value pricing. Yeah. And if it's not selling right, you're it's succession. And absolutely thinking about the legacy that you're leaving and to the next, you know, next leaders in your firm. Yep, absolutely right. So what is it about timesheets, Ron, that that is just so difficult to move away from? It's really hard. A a large part of it is the way accountants are are educated. Uh, We we tend to take a lot of cost accounting. Uh, I took a lot of cost accounting. I did cost accounting projects even when I practiced. And uh, that mindset is very difficult to change. But globally, there's four defenses you hear of timesheets. First off, we need them to price. Well, if you're not doing hourly billing, no, you don't. So we've already kind of blown that up, even with value pricing 1.0. The second defense you hear of timesheets is I need them to measure the efficiency of my team member. Well, that's false as well, because team members put down what they think the wants to see on the timesheet, not what actually happened. 
And there's no correlation, none, between how somebody looks at timesheet and how effective of an accountant they are. Timesheets don't measure customer service. They don't measure your ability to mentor, your ability to educate, change, to, to learn new things, customer service ethic. All these things are absent from a timesheet. So they provide no contact on the professionalism or the pride of the team members. So they're not a good indicator of team performance. The third defense of the timesheet is, well, we need it for project management. Well, it's false as well because proper management projects capacity going forward. In other words, it's kind of like doing your timesheet in advance. What project managers are about is turnaround time. The same reason that FedEx cares about delivery, on-time delivery, because that's what customer cares about. To run project management with timesheets is the equivalent of timing your cookies with your smoke alarm because they're a lagging indicator. By the time you see something on a timesheet, it is by definition no longer manageable. And the fourth reason, and this is probably the hardest one for accounting firms to overcome, is, well, we need timesheets to determine profitability by customer. Well, see, they're still trying to check their pricing by looking at inputs, which we broke that link in our when we broke the, uh, the hourly billing link. And so if you don't bill by the hour, there's no reason to track hours anymore. You need to measure what matters to the customer, which is on-time delivery and maybe some other things like customer contacts and things like that. But those four defenses, and that's really about all of them, uh, have been very challenging to overcome because I would say only somewhere between five and maybe 10% of firms out there have actually gotten rid of timesheets where about 40% of firms out there probably engage in some form of value pricing now. So we're still lagging on the timesheet issue, but we're, we're getting there. Yeah. I love the, your point there about, you know, measure what's important, Me- measure what you want to see. Uh, it, it, you could apply that to so many facets of life. It, it, so it got me thinking too about the, drawing the connection. Okay. So we've got this, you know, we've got this compliance work that we have to do. And I hear, you know, that, that's not going anywhere, right? Um, we're still going to have compliance work, but then, you know, as we move towards, you know, advisory and, you know, all those services, this is where value, you know, value pricing really tight starts to take hold and help, help us think differently. Can you, can you help bring those worlds together? Of how we get past this thinking of the, how we've done the compliance work and, and measuring billable hours towards this value pricing and how it plays a role in, in bigger, broader set of services. Yeah, it's a gr- it's a great question, Jason. Because I think to to a large extent, if you're out there hourly billing the compliance work, that's actually going to be a hindrance when you start to move into advisory, because hourly billing puts a premium on activity. It doesn't put a premium on profitability. It puts a premium on activity, filling up hours, and and you know I've never met a, a customer I didn't like. I never met a billable hour I didn't like. And what happens is all of this technology that we are, you know, have available now to us allows us to do more work in less time. Well, what do you do with those time savings? Well, I'll tell you what a lot of firms are doing. Unfortunately, they're going finding more compliance work. They probably shouldn't be doing in the first place. They're not taking that capacity and moving into advisory with it. And that I see is a, is a big issue. We haven't uh, moved to advisory. And we've been talking about moving to advisory since the late 80s. 
AICPA did a whole project on this. There's been other outfits talking about it. I've heard it my whole career since I started public accounting in 84 that we need to do more advisory. But we're not doing it because I think a lot of firms value volume over value. Interesting. And why, why do you think that is? Because of the business model of the billable hour, just it rewards activity. It rewards billing hours. And the, the easiest way to bill hours is to stay in your comfort zone. And your comfort zone is advisory. You know, the tax, the tax, the bookkeeping, all of that type of thing. But to move into advisory requires a little downtime. It, it requires some uh, more education, investment in your education. It requires more time for creativity and brainstorming that aren't normally rewarded in a timesheet and hourly billing environment. Yeah, that's, that's dead on right. And um, it made me think about uh, like culture and, and all the things kind of that, that go into, you know, advisory. Cause you, you've got, you've got a, it's a completely different way of thinking about things. Um, just from an individual perspective, but even, you know, in a, in a larger firm culture, that's even you know more difficult. Um, and so, uh, you know, what are your what what are your words of advice for for folks that are struggling with this? Just starting with the mindset of this is where I'm in. This is where we've we've been. You know why why should I care about you know moving to this value pricing model? And how would I even start going about that? Right. Well. Uh, <laughs> The thing is, in order to move to advisory, you need capacity. So it's that old, you know, that old uh, axiom that in order to move forward, you need to leave some things behind. And so many firms, I would say practically all firms, I can say this pretty safely. All firms have too many customers. We just try and be all things to all people. We never met a customer we didn't like, and we're not focused enough. And we pay a complexity tax for that, but we also pay a capacity tax for that. In order to advise, you need capacity to, to, to plan and brainstorm with the client to develop that deep personal relationship. And relationships take time. And again, that's not rewarded in a timesheet environment. So whether you're talking about moving from hourly billing to value pricing 1.0, or if you're still at hourly billing, I would say just jump over value pricing 1.0 and go right to 2.0 and move into the subscription model. The subscription model forces you to constantly innovate, to constantly add value. In fact, you know, subscription is a periodic payment in exchange for a frictionless and recurring benefits of services. Now, we've already got the recurring part down. Like you said, Jason, we, you know, we do compliance work every year. That's work that has to be done. The tax, the bookkeeping, whatever, that's recurring. That, that part's easy. It's the advisory. You want to be there when your customer needs you, when they're trying to not just solve problems, but a, 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 you know, a, achieve opportunities, pursue opportunities. We help our clients achieve their financial dreams. And so my view of value pricing 2.0 is like that of a concierge doctor. The, you subscribe to the concierge doctor, their, their firm, and you're covered for anything that doctor can do that you need medically. So it's not tied to a transaction it's not tied to a bundle of services for a year or whatever. It's an open-ended relationship that says, hey, we're here, and if we can add value, if we're capable of doing what you need, we'll do it. You're covered. 
for for you know a, a price. Now you can have you can still have options in those prices and whatnot. You you can still carve out certain things if you feel the need. But the bottom line is you want to make it as easy and frictionless for the customer because you know what? That's what they're comparing everything now to these days. They're buying experience on Amazon. And let me tell you, completing competing with one click on Amazon and you get your stuff the same day or the next day, the standard that we need to store. We need to up our customer experience game. And that's really hard to do if you're billing time. Or even, dare I say it, it's true, even under value price, no, there's still a a lot of friction. Yeah. And I think you nailed it right there when, when you, you know, the the way I've heard people describe like their, their service in the, in the past, you know, up to this point, it's very, very much like, you know, we differentiate ourselves as an accounting firm. We take, you know. We take the bookkeeping and the, the compliance work off of your hands so you don't have to worry about it. You can focus on your business. And our our the reason why you should do business with us is because we are exceptional at customer service. We provide advice along the way. And then we charge them for the tax return and the books. And then they complain about the bill. Right. And so what I hear you saying is you measure measure what you measure your outcome, right? If you're measuring the 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 work and the transactional work, and that's what you're billing for, then you're not moving into this relationship type of model. And that's really what value, advisory and value pricing is all about is flip the model and start charging for the relationship and then deliverable away in the form of compliance work that also puts the focus on the conversation and the ongoing relationship, right? That's exactly right now. If you look at our business model, we monetize services. We monetize transactions. We'll help you this. We'll do your tax return. Oh, you need special project or whatever. It's all transaction-based. The subscription business model, it's got a relationship-based. The relationships to be at the center. The innovation is baked in to the business model. So notice when Amazon or Netflix comes out and drops a new series, a new film or new series on us, do they increase your price when they do that? No. And so what happens in the mind of the customer is, wow, I'm getting more value from Netflix. I mean, there's more content there than I'd ever be able to watch in a lifetime. And that's what one another advantage of the subscription model is it constantly forces you to innovate. Now, that doesn't say that your pricing doesn't ever change. Of course it does. Netflix has changed its price. Amazon has changed its price. But what it does say is we're going to put the relationship at the center of this business. And Jason, I've yet to meet a firm or see a firm that doesn't talk about how good their customer service or experience is. And I'll tell you, I'm very jaded on this because the the only companies that don't talk about how good customer service is, the companies who are excellent at it. You never hear Disney talk about it. You never hear Nordstrom talk about it. You never hear L.L. Bean talk about it. Why? Because they know they have failures and they're striving every day to improve. And one thing to talk about it, but you got you to be able to carry it out. And it's really hard to carry out an excellent client experience if you're at full capacity or even over capacity. Imagine how you would feel if your dentist, if you had a toothache and you called your dentist and he said, sure, Jason, come on in and, and, and you know, in seven days I can fit you in. 
No, we want our professionals to have capacity when we need them on demand. And we need to have at all times spare capacity in order to do that. And that includes advisory work if, if that is where your firm wants to go. And I just think it's a it's a better customer experience. Better customer experience, better customer service leads to premium pricing and also very long-term customers that stick around and that grows the value of your firm. Right. Yeah. Uh, so much there to unpack. I love the Netflix analogy. And, you know, it made me too, because we have Netflix and we have Amazon Prime, you know, what really irritates us is when we go to look at a movie, my own wife and I are trying to decide on movie together, which I'm sure everybody struggles with trying to find the right movie together, right? Uh, right. You find one and then it says, oh, this one's a, this one paid. You got to rent this for $5.99. And we're like, seriously, we're paying for these subscriptions. And now we're being nickel and dime for these things. And that's that's exactly the contrast of charging for the one thing and charging for the relationship. And so then we'll pop into Netflix because we know everything we go in there is, you know, and Netflix has been even doing a great job with their own content and putting, you know, putting out movies and, and shows that, that they're producing in their own studios. And they continue to innovate on the relationship. I was going to say that's exactly right. I mean, even even outfits like Disney Plus. I know they charge $30 for some movies, right? Some, you know, if you want to be one of the first to watch their new release or whatever. But I think you're going to start to see major innovation there too. If they're going to charge you an extra add-on over and above your subscription to watch a movie, you're probably going to, in the future, probably going to get a pass to go to the theater to watch the movie with your family. There's going to be some type of value add there um, that is, is going to make people go, wow, I'm, it's a real benefit to be able to be subscribed to Disney plus. Right. And what I love about this whole conversation too, is it's, it's really shining a light on just thinking differently. Like you said it, you said it earlier that there's no accounting firm that doesn't talk about what great relationships they have with their clients. But then if you have such a great relationship, when you give them the bill for the tax return and they complain about it, how is that relationship paying off? And what this, value pricing conversation shines the light on is by by putting the focus of the the you know the the transaction of the the dollars onto the relationship instead of onto the transactional thing that's laying the stronger foundation and it pushes the whole firm culture towards focusing on that and so coming back to what you shared earlier about you know just having creating the space to innovate and and brainstorm ideas and come up with different ways to add value to the relationship and then yeah also get the other stuff done but let technology then do its job and automate all the stuff that you know that that takes up our time yeah i mean all this technology that that's its biggest promise is it frees us frees capacity up in order so we can go do the more interesting work, the more uh, work that our customers relatively value higher than just compliance work, which is uh, the advisory work. And, and the other thing the subscription model does um, is it really forces you to think about your revenue model. And what I mean by that is, what do we want our customers to pay for? What are they paying for? You know, it's one thing to say, 
we're relationship-based or we're trusted advisors. But when you look at how the monetization happens in most firm business models, it's all services. It's all transactional. And it really comes down to the ends versus the means. Customers care about the ends. They don't care about the means and how to get there. Nobody cares how long it took, you know, Honda to build their car. Uh, what they care about is the lifetime ownership experience and the cost of lifetime ownership and all of that. It's the difference between buying healthcare services versus buying health or, you know, buying classes in a college versus knowledge or lifelong knowledge. There's a great uh, eye company in the, in, the, uh, in the Nordic countries. I think it's called Sinsam. And they they revolutionized eye care. They basically said, subscribe to us, you get an eye exam every year, and we'll up we'll update you know five pairs of your glasses. And if you need more eye exams, fine, you're covered. Jason, they've grown to two hundred and forty thousand subscribers. Wow! Because the way they're positioning it, nobody cares about going getting an eye exam, and nobody cares about getting a new pair of glasses. What they're really buying, perfect eyesight. Yep. You're subscribing to perfect eyesight and people will pay for that. And it's convenient. And if I need another eye exam for some reason, I'm covered. That's the kind of frictionless convenience of mind coverage we CPA should be offering. You're seeing it more in healthcare. And I think we're, we're I think same as doctors. Doctors keep it perfectly well. Well, accountants, CPAs, they keep us financially healthy. And that's a recurring stream that's going to last a lot of time. In fact, it goes beyond all of time because we get into a state work and, you know, we plan the legacy and things like that. And so it's even beyond uh, the life that we can add value. You're so right. And that the real value of the relationship is exactly what you said, the financial health. It's, it's not the compilation reports that nobody, right. It's how, you know, I, I I get get into conversations with people and start bragging about how many tax returns did in a tax season or you know hours they spent on bookkeep you know whatever and you know I, it's like wh- what about your plan growth and their financial health that's what I hear you talk about and then they look and they're like oh, well I have this you know these this set of clients and that they, they're growing at this rate and we're working on this part of the business. That's that's what their your clients really need from you, and that's that's what's becoming very very apparent in our profession is that we are not here to be compliance focused. That is part of what we, but what we're really here for is, and I hate you know intuitism. We're here to power prosperity for small businesses, businesses for that matter, the clients we work with, to help them not just you know succeed and 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 stay afloat, but to thrive. Couldn't have said it better. That's beautiful. Uh, that's exactly right. If you ask why people became bookkeepers, accountants, CPAs, like just like if you ask people why they became a doctor, a doctor will say to help people. I, I, I'm in a caring profession. Well, we did the same thing. We entered this profession to, to uh, take care of people. To not, I mean, not take care of them like you're their parents, but to, to help people achieve their goals and their dreams and their possibilities, not just to solve problems, get the IR back or, or whatever. And yet our business model doesn't reflect that. We pay more attention to, for instance, you said how many tax returns I did this year 
versus I don't care about as a potential customer or your firm. What I want to know is, have you grown the value of your customers' businesses? That's the metric I want to look at. I don't care how many hours you spend doing tax returns or books or anything else. I care about the results, the, the ends of what you achieved for your customers. We should be tracking, showcasing that. But see, our business model doesn't monetize that. So it's not on our dashboard. It's not in our key KPIs. That's why we talk about hours and scope of work and number of tax returns and all of that stuff rather than the end result to the customer. You know, my landscaper was just here this morning. This morning, uh, I'm not paying them to do the mowing and the edging and to, you know, to trim the hedges and the trees and all of that. I'm paying them for best curbside appeal. And if they can do that in three minutes, or 30 minutes, or if it takes them three hours, I don't care. What I care about is best curbside appeal. I'm paying them three times more than other bids I received because they're the only ones that focused on the end that I'm actually paying for, which is best curbside appeal. And every customer of every listening to this has a best curbside appeal story. You've got to find out what it is. What does your customer really want? Because it's not your services. It's perfect eyesight. It's best curbside appeal, health, not just, you know, uh, treat me when I'm sick. And, and I think that's where we need to move to, not just as a profession, but as an economy. Yes, 100% agree. Uh, this, is, this is perfect. So, Ron, I'll, I'll hit you with one last question, and then I think we'll, we'll uh, wrap up the, the show here. The one thing that I hear probably the most from people who have heard, you know, heard the benefits of shifting to advisors, shifting to a value pricing model. How do I, how do I get started? How do I communicate this with my clients, especially the existing ones that I've had for 10, 15, 20 years, and we've been operating the same way for so long. It's a great question. And look, I, I'm, I'm kind of agnostic about this because I've seen so many firms do it so many different ways successfully. There is no one way to do it. Now, a lot of firms have actually shed their older, lower value customers. And it goes, goes back to that philosophy of in order to move forward, you have to leave some things behind. Sometimes you can't grow in customer base. You're just doing their tax work or their keeping work. They're not in a dynamic business or whatever. Not much you can do there from an advisor service level. You may have to get rid of some of your customers 20, 30, 40%. Sometimes I've seen up to 80. Sometimes, uh, Jason, I've seen 100%. Seen firms get rid of all their customers. Now, they didn't do it all once. They did it gradually over time. Maybe for every new customer that had, that had advisory work, get rid of two or three older ones. But in other words, you need to create a hole that you can fill uh, because you can't just go out there and start selling advisory and, and hold on to your uh, you know, your older compliance-based customers. Um, but, you know, whether you do it gradually, I've seen some firms spin out a new firm and just do it that way. So it, it slowly but surely cannibalizes the old firm. And I've seen other firms sell off their old customers uh, to free up that capacity to go after advisory. Um, I've also seen firms convert a lot of their older, quote-unquote, compliance-only firms because of this, you know, there's an old saying that our customers aren't going to get better until we do. Maybe the reason you don't think you have high value customers is because 
You've never given them a reason to be high value. They think all you do is the compliance work. If they knew you could do more for them, they might very well engage you for their services, but they, but they don't know. A lot of times, an accountant will look at the income statement of a customer, see accounting expense, and say, oh, okay, that goes to us. A few lines because it's alphabet and I'll see consulting expense. Usually a number there that's like five to ten times what they paid the accountant. And when they ask the customer, hey, what's this? Customers say, well, we hired so-and-so to do such and such. And we say, we could have done that. And the customer says, we didn't know that. Do that? Well, whose fault is that? That's our fault. Why? We have too many work. We have too much work. We have too many customers. And we don't have those deep relationships not putting in front of our customers and conversing with them about all that we could be doing for them. Um, I always joke that if accountants ran restaurants, they wouldn't give out menus. They'd bring exactly what they thought the customer needed and they would never show them any other options. <laughs> and the beauty of putting options in front of them is it shows, it showcases what you're capable of doing. Even if the customer doesn't buy it, they may buy it later as they grow or have a better year or whatever it might be. So I, I've seen it work a lot of different ways. So there's a lot of different strategies and it just depends on how fast the firm owners uh, or owner wants to move, how dedicated they are to it and, and uh, you know, how quickly they'd like to achieve it. I think that's perfect. I, I think, I think that was really helpful in hearing about all of the different types of approaches that we've seen, because I've seen the exact same things that you described, right? Some firms just, just flat out fire percentages of their customers at a time. I've seen firms sell off. And, but I think the ones that, that really struggle the most, because those are the ones really taking actions. The ones that struggle the most is the converting and just having the courage to have a conversation, put something in front of somebody that says, Hey, here's a service that you could benefit from. And you know, spot on, right? You're looking at the books and you see consulting fees on, you know that this is a client that's going to be open to this kind of a conversation. And, and you're exactly right. They just don't realize that, you know, accountants can provide more than the compliance work. And we just have to, you just have to put something together that, that allows you to have that conversation and share that with them. Absolutely. And, and that's one of the beauty, beauties of offering like three options, whether it's VP10 or VP20, you're still going to be offering options. And those options are going to showcase all the other things that the firm could be doing for that customer. Again, even if the customer doesn't buy them yet, chances are at some point they will. If they're a growing, thriving business, they're going to want to help have a uh, you know an advisor that they can trust that will help them get to the next level. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Ron, for being here. Now, if if our listeners want to learn more uh, about Value Pricing 2.0, what where would you point them to? Your Amazon. <laughs> uh, uh, well, actually, the best place to go at this point for uh, the subscription economy is the soul of enterprise.com. That's the soul of enterprise.com. That's the radio show I do every week with Ed Kluss. We've done over 350 some odd episodes. So we've been on the air coming up or just years and a bunch of shows on subscription. We've even interviewed a direct primary care doctor out of Detroit, Dr. Paul Thomas. There's shows on him. So if you go to the soulofenterprise.com, there's a, there's a listing up there. One of the tabs is uh, shows by category. 
and you'll see a category for subscription show. And that's all the shows that we've done on subscription. So we've talked to best authors, Teen Zoe, a CEO and founder of Zora. So the author of Subscribed, he's a big proponent of the subscription economy. John Warlow wrote The Automatic Customer. He's another big proponent. Uh, Robbie Kelman Baxter wrote uh, The Forever Transaction. And Ann Jenzer wrote Subscription Marketing. So we have lots of shows up there from experts and from just me and Ed talking about how this could apply specifically to professional firms. Outstanding. There it is, folks. Check it out and keep learning uh, from you know the people that have, have done all this uh, research and, and tried out these models. And uh, hopefully that helps you find your feet and, and get you going in this area. Well, I think that's it for today. Uh, so Ron, thanks so much for being here. We really appreciate you coming onto the show and sharing your, your expertise and look forward to hearing more from you as we move forward. Thank you, Jason. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you want to learn more about any of the topics discussed on the show, visit intuitaccountants.com forward slash podcast. Account Trends is produced and edited by Luke Johnston. Copyright Intuit 2021.